If you will, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. I'd like to read Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 24, as the setting for our message entitled, God's Chastising Judgment. Romans 2, verses 17 to 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Apostle Paul has been challenging those to whom he was attempting to reach with the gospel by describing the nature of human depravity. He began that description in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and will continue it all the way through chapter 3, verse 20 of this book of Romans. As he pinpoints the facets of man's utter sinfulness, he also ensures that man understands this sinfulness and that God is no respecter of race or religion. It pervades every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. In the latter part of Romans 1, he tells us that the irreligious, the pagan man, is corrupt through and through, which we saw very clearly as we studied that portion of Romans, and therefore, man is deserving of divine judgment. Paul also contends, however, that it isn't simply the irreligious whose sinfulness engenders the wrath of God, but also the pinnacle of religious people who also deserves the fury of God's eternal judgment apart from Christ. That is what he's been proclaiming here in Romans 2. For instance, in verses 1 to 5, Paul says that it is the Jew who surely must be considered one of the most religious people of the world who are condemned because while they pass judgment upon the pagan world around them, They are actually hypocritically guilty of practicing the same kinds of sins. And that 
because they have the same kind of wicked heart. God's judgment rightly falls on them, and it is so because they have hard and impenitent hearts. God's kindness, Paul says, is designed to lead them to repentance, but they spurn that kindness in favor of their wicked pleasures, and thus they store up wrath against the day of wrath. Further, Paul says in verses 6 to 11, that God will not show favoritism to anyone, even toward the religious, not even the Jews, but will reward those who do good, righteous things, and will punish those who do evil, wicked things. The God-seekers, Paul says, will be privileged to receive their ultimate glorification in heaven, and the self-seekers will receive wrath and fury. God will judge both the Jew and the Gentile, that is, every non-Jew, that's every one of us in the world who isn't a Jew, because He shows utterly no partiality in His judgments. And the Jews might very well object at this point to Paul's words and say something like this, but how could God, how could He, especially when we've been given the very Mosaic Law to show us the way, and the Gentiles don't have that law. We do. Surely we are safe from God's wrath by virtue of the fact that we are God's chosen people and we are the ones who've received the very law of God. Surely we're exempt of any people on the face of the earth. Surely we're exempt. But Paul says in verses 12 to 16, however, that all who have sinned with or without the law will perish. And besides, he says in verse 13, it isn't those who are merely hearers of the law who are saved from God's wrath, but those who are the doers of God's law who are redeemed. They're the ones whom God sees as righteous in His sight. And if any Jew assumes that the Gentiles don't have the Mosaic law, true enough, Paul says, but they have a kind of law, a law written on their hearts, which allows and shows that they have a conscience, a conscience at least enough to know some right and wrong, which actually doesn't save them, it actually condemns them. Because when they come before God ultimately in the day of judgment, they've known enough right and wrong to do right, but they don't do right, and so they aren't exempt either. They all have a law, Jew or Gentile, and they'll all be judged by God fairly and equitably according to their works, and they'll all receive a just sentence. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. Verse 18 and following, all the way through to Romans 2, up to our text in verse 17. And when we come to verses 17 to 24 now, Paul wants to zero in even more specifically on the matter of the Jews and their contention that they have God's law. Apparently, they don't 
yet believe, or Paul assumes that they don't yet believe what he's saying. And he wants to hammer away at them even more. He wants to make more of his case. And maybe they're not yet convinced about this matter of the law. Maybe they're still going to say on the day of judgment, but you gave us this law. We had God's blessing. We had God's favor. Surely that's enough. And Paul, in verses 17 to 24, that which I just read and you followed along, will show them emphatically and chastisingly that it is not enough. It will not be enough to save them in the day of God's judgment. Notice how he does this. If you're taking notes, the outline of this passage would go something like this. Three points. I don't know why preachers often give three points. But there are three in this text. It just is the way it's laid out. Number one. In verses 17 to 20, Paul describes the spiritual privileges of the Jews. The spiritual privileges of the Jews. And number two, in verses 21 to 22, this reflects Paul's chastisement of the Jews because of their sinful perversion of those privileges. So first... You see Paul describing the Jews' spiritual privileges in verses 17 to 20. Secondly, their sinful perversion of those privileges. And thirdly, in verses 23 and 24, Paul gives a stinging pronouncement. You see, the spiritual privileges, the sinful perversion, and thirdly, a stinging pronouncement. Three points. And I won't be ending with a poem. Number one, the spiritual privileges of the Jews. Look at verses 17 to 20 again. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. What's going on here? Well, Paul is giving the Jews a little history lesson about themselves. He ought to know, right? He is one. He ought to know about his own heritage. And he's giving them a little history lesson about their spiritual privileges. He gives a wonderful summation here of the spiritual privileges of the Jewish people and what God had intended them to be for the world around them. And contrary to what you may hear about this passage, there isn't necessarily a negative thing listed here about them, at least in these verses, 17 to 20. This isn't negative. It's merely a summation, a categorization of the spiritual privileges which God had bestowed upon the Jews as to what they were to be and to do for the nations around them. And Paul gives here eight verbs which describe Jewish heritage and duty. Listen to what they were 
and are, because it's obviously still true about them, even though they have largely rejected these things, at least in terms of their application. Listen to them. Look at the first one. But if you call yourself a Jew, that's the first. That's the first spiritual privilege. Originally, this term Jew referred to someone who had descended from the tribe of Judah. It applied as a term after the exile to any Israelite. And in Paul's day, it was a reference to anyone who belonged to the people of Israel. It is in Paul's mind a term that denotes someone who is a part of God's covenant people. God had promised that He would call out a people, a people called for His name, a covenant faithfulness of people, and this is a term that's used. You might hear the term Israeli today, but in the Bible, this term Jew is a designation of God's chosen people. And so he says here, if you call yourself a Jew, it's not just a title of a race of people, it's the title of a people who are spiritually called out by God. That's the first term. Look at the next one. They rely on the law. This is a reference to the law of God given at Mount Sinai. This is a direct reference, beloved, to the idea that the Jews in Paul's day were those that he knows and they affirm were given God's very law. The Mosaic law. And notice he says rely on. means to lean on. They were leaning on, relying on, trusting upon the law as their guide, their guide against disaster. They trusted it. Moses was their leader. He was revered. They relied on the law. Thirdly, and boast in God, Paul says. And this isn't negative. It's... What we might say, like in Jeremiah 9, don't boast in your wisdom, don't boast in your might, don't boast in your riches, but if you boast, boast in whom? The Lord. That's what he's saying. Paul says himself in 2 Corinthians 10:17, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Jews boasted in the Lord. They boasted in their God. This isn't negative. He's simply saying, you call yourself a Jew, You are those who are blessed by God to be the chosen of God. You rely on the law. You lean on God's law. And thirdly, you boast in God. God is your boast. You heard earlier this morning, let's brag on God. Let's boast in God. Let's boast in His faithfulness, in His majesty. Let's boast in Him. The fourth spiritual privilege, and know His will has to do with knowing what God desires through His divine revelation. The Jews knew what God wanted from them through His divine will expressed through His revelation. Now grab a hold of this concept. There wasn't wasn't any other nation around other than the Jewish people who knew what God wanted. Now there were a lot, of course, who assumed they knew what their God wanted them to do, but they were false gods, gods with a little g. This was the true God, Yahweh God, Jehovah God. And He had expressed His divine will through His revelation, verbal and then written, exactly as He wanted them to perform it. They knew His will. Knowing His will, Paul says. 
He could have expanded on these things, but he's just giving a summation. Look at the fifth spiritual privilege and approve what is excellent. Now, that's a little bit more difficult to understand. It could mean how the English Standard Version translates it here, approving what is excellent, mirroring what Paul said, say, for instance, in Philippians 1.10, so that you, in his prayer to the Philippians, may approve what is excellent. You may approve what is best. You may approve that which is worthy, worthy to think on, as he says in Philippians 4.8. Or... This phrase could mean something like distinguish the things that differ. Speaking more about something like discernment. uh, Leaving indifferent things behind and only being taken up with significant things. Maybe that's how the New American Standard translates it. Approve the things that are essential. Maybe that's the kind of spiritual privilege that God had blessed the Jews with. He had given them such a divine favor such a word from himself, such a law, that they had the ability to distinguish the things that were true and right and honorable and lovely, that they saw the things that weren't essential, and so they said, look, those things aren't essential to us in our life, and we're going to say no to those things, and we're going to say yes to these things, and so we're going to leave the insignificant things behind, and we're going to grab a hold of the significant, the essential, and leave the others in our wake. And while the other nations around us are not doing the things that they should be doing significantly, essentially, we are. That's great privilege. A lot of people in our world that are not keeping the main things the main thing. Why? Because they don't know how. They haven't been taught. They don't know what to do. They haven't kept the essential things essential because they don't know They haven't been taught. We don't know exactly which this is here. Either way, however, the Jews were discriminating people, only approving certain things that were excellent according to God's standard. And look at the next one. Because you are instructed from the law. That's the reason for their discernment, their discrimination. They're approving of those things that are excellent. That's the sixth spiritual privilege here in verse 18. Because you are instructed from the law. By the way, that word instructed there, katecheo. That's the word from which we receive the English word what? Catechism. That's a a later use of the word that meant to instruct a young convert. Somebody was catechized. Somebody was taught. Somebody was new and they were instructed in the law. They were taught from God's very law book. Well, what a privilege. You say, that doesn't seem to be that much of a privilege for me. How about you were one of those nations and you were a savage nation? You were an untaught nation. And you didn't have God's very law book. And you continued to be a savage nation. And you tore at one another. And you killed one another. And the Jews had God's law. And they learned how to love one another. And how to be at peace with one another. That's a privilege. And they had that privilege. And then he goes with at least a little slight alteration in the grammar of the text to the next one. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind... A light to those 
who are in darkness. This is a great spiritual privilege. It has to do with the Jews' outreach. Now he's saying it's not just who you are in and of yourself, but it's now your outreach. It's what you do to the nations around you. It's your privilege to be all about the outreach of your life. It's the impact of your person and your character. They were to be guides and lights. All that God has taught you, it's not just that which you are to take up in your own heart, but it's now that which you are to give out in your life. They were supposed to take those who were blind and give them sight and those in darkness and give them light. And this is what they were supposed to do to the nations surrounding them. Those nations were blind and dark, having no guides to the true God and no one but the Jews to lead them out of darkness into light. And Paul, in referencing these things, is no doubt alluding to Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. You don't have to turn there, but listen to it. This is what God says. Probably an allusion to this very passage. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. That's their mandate. That's who they were to be. And that may have even been a reference to Christ ultimately and Christ, of course, as He leads His people. Isaiah 49.6 also says, I will make you as a light for the nations, listen to this, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Boy, what an incredible privilege. What an opportunity to take God's salvation to the end of the earth. This is, this is a privilege beyond privilege. And the Jews had this privilege. That's what God had called them to do. Guides to the blind and light to those in darkness. Paul's giving a wonderful summation here of not only their character, not only that which was true about them as a people, but their duty. Notice what else he says here, the eighth and final spiritual privilege. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Well, he even goes further into their duty. It's not just that you proclaim the good news that God saves sinners, but also how to do it. You are to instruct the foolish. You're to teach children. Why? Because you have in the law the very embodiment of knowledge and truth. When he says here you're to instruct the foolish, it's not so much the idea of the foolish person of Proverbs. It's really this idea of foolish Someone who's not so much scornful, rejecting the, scornfully rejecting the truth, but to the ignorant. And he adds here a teacher of children, literally someone who's a babe. You know, it's really the idea that someone who's immature, someone who's an infant in knowledge, someone who needs us, who needs because of their untrained, ignorant, immature condition, they need us to teach them. 
Well, there's, there's sort of a, an evangelistic fervor here. Why? Why? Because the nations need to hear the message. That's the point. He says, look, if you call yourself a Jew, God's chosen people, and you rely on, lean on the law, and you boast in Jehovah, and you know His will, His expressed divine revelation, and you approve what is excellent, you say yes to the essential things, and you let the non-essential fall behind, because you're instructed from the very law of God itself, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, and a light to those in darkness, You're an instructor of those who are ignorant and you're a teacher of babes because you have in the law of God, His divine revelation, the very embodiment of knowledge and truth. What spiritual privilege that is. Wow! They had it all. They had it all. There is an obligation to teach and train those without the law by those who have been trained by it because in the law is the very embodiment of knowledge and truth. That is like you have the very cure for every known form of cancer in the universe. You have it all. The very embodiment of of the cure. And God says, go and spread it to every nation and tribe and people and tongue. What an awesome privilege the Jews were given. They had it all and they were to share it with all of those around them. And I can't help but stop here and make some applicatory statements about ourselves even as professing Christians. Because some of you might say, look, I'm not a Jew not a Jewish person. You're talking right over my head here. Well, if you're a professing Christian, let me ask you, what are you doing with the knowledge that you have? You have God's knowledge. You have the Scripture. Are you taking the spiritual privileges that you've been given and are you instructing those unbelievers around you? You take the spiritual privileges that you have for granted? What are you doing with what you have? You say, I don't have much. What are you doing with that which you have? doesn't matter how much you have. What are you doing with what you have? Someone says, I don't know much. What are you doing with that much you know? They were given it all. And we've been given much. What are we doing with the much we've been given? Or maybe I could even rephrase the passage this way. Look back at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Christian and rely on the Word of God and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the Bible and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the spiritually blind a light to those who are in spiritual darkness. You are an instructor of the foolish unbeliever. 
a teacher evangelist of the spiritually infantile, having in the Old and New Testaments the embodiment of knowledge and truth. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Are you teaching others? Training others? Evangelizing others? I mean, this short summation in these verses, verses 17 to 20, it it may be a characterization of the Jews and who they were, but it could likely be a characterization of us and our spiritual privilege as well. But, what's Paul's point in bringing this up? Well, that's outline point number two. What's his point in this context, from this text? What's his point in bringing this up? Well, to show them what they've done with their privileges. And believe me, I'll talk about what we may have done with our spiritual privileges as well. Look at what he says in verse 21. You then... Who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You see, what they've done is they've taken all of the spiritual privileges that they've been given, all of this wonderful summation of all that they've been given, and they've sinfully perverted it. How? They've taken the law, and they've told others about it, and they haven't followed it themselves. It's it's hypocrisy. This is his chastising judgment. First, notice that he asks an overall banner question. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Sort of like a title. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And then underneath that title... He has three very pointed questions, three related questions underneath that banner or header question. And if the Jews were to see these questions, and if they were to be these teachers of the pagans, the Gentile world around them, the nations, if they were to be these instructors, because they possess the law, they said they love the law, which is the very embodiment of knowledge and truth, then he sharply asks the question, do you not teach yourself? In other words, how is it that you are not following what you are teaching others? See, he doesn't say you're not teaching others. He says you are teaching. Apparently they were teaching They just weren't living what they were teaching, which is the worst of all. Now, of course, someone might say, well, then I'm not going to teach. If I'm not living it, then I'm not going to teach. Now, that that doesn't get you off the hook. They, They have to teach and follow the teaching. 
And it's really going right back to chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, isn't it? Look at that with me. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is a statement really on their hypocrisy, isn't it? And we might borrow from Hebrews 5.12. Paul could say it this way, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the elementary or basic principles of the oracles of God. The law of God, the Mosaic legislation. In short, we might say it this way. They aren't practicing what they preach. They have not applied what the law says. This is, as you know, one of the biggest criticisms of religion. Those who would be teachers of others, yet they do not do what they teach. This was the huge criticism of Jesus toward the religious leaders of the day. It wasn't just of the leaders, but of course they were the ones leading out front, front of the people. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 23. Did you realize that Matthew 23, the entire chapter, is a diatribe against the religious leaders by Jesus himself? The entire chapter is devoted to this. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, And it's true of the people, of course, because Hosea said, like people, like priests. The scribes of the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's probably where we came up with that idea, not even to lift a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Those are those things that the the Jews wear religiously on their clothing to make them look religious. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then these series of woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make one single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Strong language. Woe to you, blind guides, 
Sound like Romans 2? Who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, verse 23. Woe to you, verse 25. Woe to you, verse 27. Woe to you, verse 29. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Incredible indictment. Why? Hypocrites, he says, verse 25. Hypocrites, verse 27. Hypocrites, verse 29. Why? Paul says... You're an instructor of the foolish, Romans 2.20, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And like the religious leaders, it filters down to the people. And among all of the things he could have chosen, among all of the things that he might have even chosen from the lips of Jesus himself, He chooses three things out of the Decalogue, out of the Ten Commandments. Notice what he says. While you preach against stealing, verse 21, do you steal? This, of course, is a direct violation of the Eighth Commandment of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 15. And someone might say, but that would not have characterized every single Jew. He's not trying to characterize every single Jew. He's speaking representatively. He's not trying to say that every single Jew would have been guilty of stealing. He's trying to point out the fact, just like he mentioned in Romans 1 about Gentiles representatively, that representatively they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness and malice, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness and gossips and slanderers and haters of God and insolent and haughty and boastful and admitters of evil and disobedient to parents and foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless. Here, representatively, they steal. And secondly, he says, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Representatively, there were some who committed adultery. The violation of the seventh commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14. Some of them did. It may have even been because God knows we don't. Many of them did. Certainly it became such a problem that Moses in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, had to regulate remarriage because they continually divorced their wives and remarried others. It was a problem. It may not have been a problem with all, but it was a problem with some, if not many. And then he says, thirdly, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What does he mean by that? It's a little harder to determine, but it might mean that the Jews were not paying the temple tax. The tax that would keep up the temple there in Jerusalem. Or it may have even meant that they were actually robbing the temple 
of some of its wares, which would have been extremely rare. Or maybe he means, do you rob temples in a spiritual sense? That is, robbing God of his proper worship. I don't know if it means that. If it does, it would be different than the literal meaning, I think, of the first two. So maybe it's probably literal to match the first two. Maybe they were robbing the temple of some things that were in the temple and maybe selling it to the Gentiles. That certainly was true of some of them in that day. Whatever he means here, and we can't know with certainty, the point is this. The Jews of Paul's day and even every Jew would he be referring to here were hypocrites. Hypocrites. They had the law, but were not following the law. They had the law, but somehow they had externalized it. You say, how so? Look in your Bibles at Philippians 3. I'll show you how they did it, because I'll show you Paul. Here's how Paul did it. Paul himself. Here's a testimony from the lips of Paul looking back on his pre-Christian life, on his unregenerate life. This is what he says, Philippians 3, 5. He says in verse 4, If anybody puts confidence in the flesh, in their, in their fleshiness, in their unregenerate state, if they're trying to be right with God in their flesh, I would have reason, I would have confidence in the flesh far more than all of these. Why? Verse 5, Circumcised on the eighth day, I was a true Jew of the people of Israel, true Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, which might have meant the very castigation that Jesus would have been referring to in Matthew 23, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, notice this, under the law, blameless. Blameless. Now you say, blameless? How, how could he be actually blameless? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's actually truthfully able to pin these words. Blameless. Does that mean he was perfect? No. That means that externally, he was able to correctly and fastidiously say as to the external conformity to the code, the law of God, there wasn't anything that anybody could say about the exterior of my life for which I could be blamed. But what does he say in Romans 7 about the inside? He said, I wouldn't have even known about coveting unless the law said what? Do not covet. But he says, when that law said do not covet, there was in me a raging of covetousness. There was an external passing of the law that people could see on the outside of blamelessness. But on the inside, I was guilty. I was guilty before God. And that's no doubt what he now charges with the other Jews of his day. You are also guilty before God. And probably not just on the externals 
with regard to the law, but now he's even charging them in their lifestyle, stealing, adultery, and temples. You know what these three questions are designed to produce? A guilty plea. A guilty plea. Yes, I'm guilty before God. That's, that's the indictment here. And that's the result. I've told you before, Paul is, is the attorney here on God's behalf. I am guilty. That's the only proper response of these Jews. I'm guilty. My heart is wicked. I'm undone. I've not followed His law in the deep recesses of my heart. And then lastly, when they come to that point, He doesn't just say at this point, okay, I have Jesus for you. I mean, you think that might be His response. Okay, I have Jesus for you. Here it is. I have the cross. No. Look at verse 23. Listen to his stinging pronouncement. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. That would be the most stinging pronouncement of all. Paul says, you may boast in God, verse 17, and you may boast in the law here in verse 23, but in reality, you're a law breaker. By the way, this is really not a question. It may appear as a question in your text. It's not a question. It's a declaration. It's a declaration. It is so bad, he's saying, it is so bad that the very ones you've been called to reach, the Gentiles, instead of praising the name of God because of you, because that's the result, right? You reach the nations around you, you reach them with the word of truth, with the good news of God, that instead of wrath they can receive mercy. That's the message. Instead, what kind of message do they receive? I don't want to follow your God. I don't want to follow your God. I blaspheme your God. Why? Because I look at your lifestyle. I see that you steal. You're no different from me. Isn't, isn't that what the Christian church is told time and again today? You, 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 you want me to follow you? You want me to come to church? You want me to do what you do? I look at your life at work. I don't see any difference between you and me. I see you stealing. I see you committing adultery. You're an advertisement for Christianity. I don't see it. My lifestyle is no different than yours. That's what he's saying. A stinging pronouncement upon God's chosen people. That's why he says in Isaiah 52.5, that's probably where Paul took it. Continually, God says, all the day my name is despised. Oh, instead of praising God, instead of God being praised, God says continually all the day my name is despised. And you have to, you have to see this. Turn back to Ezekiel as we close. Turn back to Ezekiel 36. 
You have to see what God says when we don't do what He commands. Ezekiel 36. It's incredible. This is the Lord's concern for His holy name. God through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Ezekiel 36, 17, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Is that graphic? So I poured out my wrath upon them. This is a similar context like Romans 2, what Paul is saying. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood they had shed in the land, for the idols, just like you Jews in Paul's day, you abhor idols but you rob temples, for the idols which which they had defiled it, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. God just had to disperse them through the countries because they weren't ready to be a nation in their own land following God in accordance with their ways and their deeds I judged them but when they came to the nations you'd think they would repent he says you'd think they would do what is right when I scattered them but when they came to the nations wherever they came they profaned my holy name in that people said of them, here's what the people said, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Incredible. God had concern, but His people didn't. Rather than being a guide to the blind and the light and the darkness, the Jews were instead themselves lawbreakers and hypocrites who shattered their witness to the nations around them by their own deeds. And God's chastising judgment indeed is just. And you say... I'm glad I'm not one of these Jews Paul is speaking of here. Well, frankly, whether one is a Jewish person or not, this text relates to all of us, doesn't it? We're all lawbreakers. We're all hypocrites. You say, I'm no hypocrite. I do what God says. Oh, that must mean that you follow the law of God perfectly. That means whether in the minutest element of your life to the largest facet, you're fastidiously following every aspect of God's law. You're perfectly teaching others to follow it as well. We know that's not true. No, the Word of God says you're not like that. I'm not like that. Back up to verse 12 of Romans 2. All have sinned without All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You say, who is that? All of us. 
every single one of us. Or as we'll find out later on as we come to it, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. You see that verse, Romans 3.23, only gives us two categories, doesn't it? All who have sinned and God. That's it. All who have sinned and God. The all includes every single person, man, woman, and child without distinction. And the term God includes the person of Jesus Christ because he knew no sin. Therefore, he didn't fall short of the glory of God. And because you and I are included in the category of all sinners, all lawbreakers, all blasphemers, we are in desperate need of the glory of God for which we fall far short. We need someone to die in our place so that our sin would be covered and whereby we would be saved from the wrath of God. God has provided that covering for sin in the person of Jesus Christ, His sinless Son, who is the exact representation of His nature and His glory. But we must repent. We must repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ alone in order to be delivered from God's Righteous judgment. And just as all who sin fall short of the glory of God, all who trust Christ alone for deliverance will be included in the ultimate glory God has promised to those who love Him. Repent of sin and believe in Christ right now, and your sins will be forgiven. Your blind eyes will be opened and light will come into your darkness. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you have promised such a thing. You have promised us that we will be those who will be delivered from the wrath to come if our lives reflect the covering for sin that you've provided. You've provided no other covering than Jesus Christ the righteous. He did not fall short of your glory, but He is your glory. He is Israel, my glory. I pray, Father, that you would give those in attendance today eyes to see and light to dispel the darkness. May they repent and believe. No longer be lawbreakers and hypocrites. 
But join with us as former lawbreakers and former hypocrites. Those who are on the pilgrim way. Attempting to glorify you, however failingly. May we see those who need you. Repent and believe even today. May Jew and Gentile alike come to faith alone in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.